0: This podcast is once again presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn
1: more at virginiahistory.org.
2: Hello and welcome everyone to episode four of season four. And I'm your podcast gal, Rachel DePompa. Okay, that sounded super podcast geeky. (laughs) Guess what? We have a new Instagram account for the podcast, so you will find tons of bonus photos, facts, and behind the scenes with the whole team. Just search How We Got Here VA. Find us and like us. We'd appreciate it. Are you ready? I know I am. Let's get going. We are turning back the clock on the week of October 26th through November 1st. Get ready for a bit of grade school nostalgia. Though, we're going to take what you think you know and give it a twist. Because what was commonly taught in schools about our next topic, surprise, surprise, isn't quite right. October 26th, 1676, the day Nathaniel Bacon dies in Virginia, and with him dies Bacon's Rebellion. And we just happen to know a 17th century Virginia expert that we've had on how we got here before.
1: My name is Luke Pecorero, and I am the Director of Curatorial Services at the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. We operate both the Jamestown Settlement Museum and the American Revolution Museum at Yorktown.
2: You'll remember Luke from our story of the colonists poisoning the Powhatans from episode five of season three. This time period is in his wheelhouse, so let's get to it.
1: Nathaniel Bacon himself arrives in the Virginia colony in early 1675. He's 28 years old. He's well-educated. He's well-connected. He has a very prominent uncle of the same name, also Nathaniel Bacon, who sits on the governor's council at Jamestown.
2: The younger Bacon buys a plantation in modern-day Verina in Henrico County, which in the 1670s was considered the frontier of the Virginia settlement.
1: He's trying to position himself to be one of the wealthy planter elites. So if you think of some of these Virginia names that are quite common, Washington, Randolph, Carter, Lee, all of these names, the surnames of well-established planters who had been in the colony for quite some time, amassed a lot of land, planted a lot of tobacco, and therefore had the wealth and power. And Nathaniel Bacon wants to get to that point too.
2: Because he's on the frontier, Bacon is involved in trading with Virginia Indians, a business venture that he saw to be quite lucrative, if he got his way.
1: During 1675 and 1676, relations between English settlers in Virginia and uh, the Native American population is really at a boiling point. Bacon, as he attempts to become involved in the Indian trade, raises a lot of hackles. An overseer on one of his plantations on the frontier is killed by Virginia Indians. Really, that's kind of what sets him off. He determines that his strategy going forward is gonna be the old Virginia adage, the only good Indian is a dead Indian.
2: That gives you pause, doesn't it? So weird to hear that's an old Virginia saying. Bacon's ultimate goal is to control the trade network by taking as much power away from the Indians as possible and become a leader of sorts to reap the benefits.
1: And the trade network is rather complicated, but what it involves is mostly old white-tailed deer hide beaver hides, so pelts and things like that, that are coming from the interior of what is, at that period, unsettled Indian territory. So you, you don't have a lot of white settlers and planters going out and kind of pushing the boundary.
2: But there's a problem. One man stands in Bacon's way of simply slaughtering Indians to get what he wants. royal governor of the Virginia Colony, Sir William Barclay. And because Barclay represented Britain and the crown, Bacon's eventual rebellion is taught in schools as the early beginnings of the American Revolution and fighting against the British. But that's not what was at the heart of the issue here.
1: Really, You have two contentious figures who are almost destined to be in conflict right out of the gate.
2: Barclay has already been royal governor for quite some time, first between 1641 to 1652, which saw a lot of fighting between colonists and Virginia Indians. But then he's reinstated as royal governor around 1660 and holds that position into the 1670s, when Bacon bursts onto the scene.
1: So making peace with the Virginia Indians and other Native Americans operating in Virginia is of Barclay's paramount concern. He doesn't want to rock the boat because he's already been there during his period of governorship during the Indian Wars from 1644 to 1646.
2: And now Bacon wants to spark more fighting with the Indians to make a buck.
1: He petitions Governor Sir William Barclay to lead the Virginia militia against the Virginia Indians. And Barclay doesn't take too kindly to that, you know, affront to his royal authority as the person in charge. He's supposed to be the one that calls out the militia.
2: And so begins a saga with twists and turns you won't believe.
1: It's effectively an Indian war that turns into a civil war. In 1675, a planter named Thomas Matthew, who's living up in what's now present-day Prince William or Fairfax County, so up in northern Virginia on the banks of the Potomac, gets into an altercation with the local Indian population, a group known as the Doe Eggs. So it's difficult to tell exactly what happened, but basically it boils down to a trading dispute. So Thomas Matthew and some members of his cohort go out in search of these Doeg Indians and they come across another group of Indians, the Susquehannocks, who had been pushed out of their territory in New York and settled on the Maryland side of the Potomac River. Matthew and his men attack and kill several Susquehannock, sparking a war between the Susquehannock, the Doeg, and then the white settlers who are living on the frontier.
2: This war prompts Royal Governor Barclay to take action to defend the colony in the form of forts on the frontier for protection from hostile tribes. But the problem was those forts were going to be paid for with taxes on local planters, many of whom were barely making a living as is.
1: You largely have a landless new settler population who kind of has to live out this hard Scrabble existence? So you have people who are already disenfranchised who are now being uh, you know, caught up with their lives at risk from attack and, and having taxes levied on them for their own protection. So it's really kind of counterintuitive. But Bacon is persistent and he quickly gathers a lot of allies who do feel disenfranchised. He does have a number of members of the you know, upper echelon of the planter class that do support him in what he's trying to do, but by and large, his big adherents are gonna be the folks who are living out on the frontier.
2: Even though Bacon is well off, he sees this support as an opportunity to take control of the trade network his way. His bloodlust was relentless. He again petitioned Barkley to raise the militia to fight the Indians. And once again, he was denied. So what did Bacon do? He proceeded to raid, loot, and kill Virginia Indians anyway. The white, land-owning men of Henrico County even elected Bacon to the House of Burgesses, but Barkley kicks him out. So, Bacon raises an army of about 500 men, and they march to Jamestown to demand a commission from Barclay to go after Virginia Indians. It's the prequel to a moment in Virginia history that sounds like it's straight out of Game of Thrones.
1: When Bacon shows up to demand a commission from Barclay, and he's got an armed band with him, you know, to kind of force the governor's hand. Barclay is so riled up at this point at having his royal authority challenged that he walks out of the state house, rips open his shirt in a very cavalier and piratical fashion, tells Nathaniel Bacon to go ahead and, and take the first shot. Fair Mark, go ahead and shoot if we're going to be at odds like this, then you know, I'm going to give you the opportunity to go ahead and shoot me in cold blood right here in front of all these people. And of course, Bacon being a rash young man isn't so stupid to go ahead and take a shot at the uh, symbol of royal authority in Virginia. It is a well-documented event that actually did happen to add more drama to uh, a rather bizarre, you know, kind of what is considered to be a blip in American history.
2: A shirtless showdown. You know, go ahead, kill me, rip open the shirt. There are paintings of this moment in museums. I'm not quite sure what to say about all the testosterone happening here. (laughs) After buttoning up his shirt, what does Barkley end up doing?
1: Ultimately, Barkley refuses, but then, you know, under force of arms, he relents, reverses his decision and gives Bacon a commission. Well, that doesn't last for very long. By July of 1676, Barclay reverses his decision and brands Bacon a rebel. This is after Nathaniel Bacon has marched against several peaceful groups of Virginia Indians, the Pamunkey in particular kills several of them, captures them as slaves. It's very clear Bacon is not doing what he set out to do and is going after the allies of Barclay and of Virginia.
2: As the days pass, support for Bacon grows. And by this time, the royal governor of Virginia is on the run.
1: Bacon has raised this sizable army. Barclay doesn't have enough allies. Bacon continuously attempts to go seek out friendly Virginia Indians and attack them. And that's kind of the point that you get to in August of 1676.
2: Sir William Barclay spends that month along Virginia's eastern shore. To be near his most loyal supporters.
1: In September of sixteen seventy-six, he comes back to Jamestown with a very, very small force, not nearly as large as Bacon. He issues a proclamation against Nathaniel Bacon, who's, you know, in open rebellion. He restates this and you know offers Bacon to come turn himself in and end the rebellion peaceably.
2: Well, as you can imagine, that didn't work. Instead of turning himself in, Bacon and his army begin to surround Jamestown.
1: He's able to kind of encircle the Jamestown defenses and get in so close as to be within artillery range. He captures the lives of some of Barclay's loyalists and effectively uses them as a human shield when he's uh, kind of digging in Barclay's Supporters are, of course, reticent to shoot at their wives, you know, go out after Bacon.
2: Women as shields. Bet they didn't teach you that in school.
1: Barkley recognizes that his situation there is untenable and abandons it. So you've got Barkley and his flotilla out in the James River. Nathaniel Bacon and his supporters enter Jamestown and burn it to the ground. And so by September 19th, Jamestown is just a former relic of what it had been as the capital of Virginia in ruins.
2: Anything that was left following the flames was up for grabs.
1: After Jamestown is burned, Bacon and his supporters effectively plunder the homes of Barclays loyalists. Uh, so you have a lot of other you know, wealthy planners, in fact, Bacon's Castle, the historic site that's operated by Preservation Virginia on the south side of the James, gets its name not because Bacon was ever there, but because Bacon's supporters used that particular house, which was owned by a Barclay loyalist named Arthur Allen, as a fortified area where they plundered everything that Arthur Allen had, ate his hogs, took crops, took the livestock and everything else so you have these you know kind of marauding bands of baconians on the south side and on the middle peninsula
2: it seemed everything was going bacon's way he had effectively run the royal government out of its headquarters and he and his fellow baconians were basically doing what they wanted
1: and that's where we find bacon suddenly meeting his demise
2: which brings us to October 26, 1676. Yep, the young Bacon just up and dies. As his rebellion appears to be securing an incredibly unlikely victory.
1: It's a bizarre affair. <laughs> By the best accounts that we've got, he dies of dysentery at a place called Gloucester Hall in October of 1676 and he's buried in an unmarked location so that loyalists can't find his body and and desecrate it.
2: Dysentery isn't a pleasant way to go, but the way they refer to it in the 17th century makes it sound even worse.
1: The bloody flux. It's it's quite a miserable disease, especially when you're uh, you're traipsing around in the woods in the subtropical Virginia heat.
2: Colonial records also show that Bacon was not the epitome of cleanliness and hygiene.
1: I believe it's Barclay who refers to Bacon himself as that lousy fellow. There are many, many, many different references to Bacon being infested with lice. That's ultimately not the main cause of his death. Uh, We do believe it's dysentery or the bloody flocks as it was called in the 17th century that weakened him so severely. And then the lice certainly didn't help.
2: We've reached gross level, moving on. (laughs) But the rebellion could certainly continue without Bacon leading the charge, right?
1: Without that charismatic leader in the form of Nathaniel Bacon, there's another individual named Joseph Ingram who takes command of the dwindling Baconians, and basically by November The last pockets of resistance on behalf of these Baconians are stamped out. Barclay reasserts control, brutally seeks out any individuals who were known to be leaders of this rebellion clique.
2: And by brutally seeks out, he means it. Remember, many of the Loyalists under Barclay had their homes and properties destroyed, so they're out for blood.
1: Barclay puts to death 23 individuals, only eight of whom actually were given a trial. So it's very quick, swift justice.
2: Swift, indeed. Some men were put to death within hours of capture. So what exactly was it that made Nathaniel Bacon the only man who could lead this rebellion?
1: It was that charismatic brand of leadership that he brought to the table. He was 28 when he came to Virginia, 29 when he's leading the rebellion. So he's, he's got a very hot head and does make several bombastic proclamations that he's fighting for the people. So it's this disenfranchised class that he finds a ready audience with who were already upset by many of the things that they viewed as their suppression of rights by Barclay's royal authority. So I think without an individual like Bacon, who's really, really, really repeating that message and hammering that home. It's quite easy for everything to fall apart and lose steam once he's dead.
2: Now we have to get back to what we mentioned at the beginning of this segment. How this story got so twisted through history as to portray Bacon as a revolutionary figure in the colony, fighting against the mighty British royalty. Turns out the culprit was none other than a founding father from Virginia.
1: This is something that goes back to a statement that Thomas Jefferson made when he was president in 1800. Jefferson had gotten his hands on a manuscript that was written by Thomas Matthew, that disaffected planter who kind of touched off Bacon's rebellion. And it was Thomas Matthew's account of the whole affair. And after reading this document, Jefferson commented, that Nathaniel Bacon was not dissimilar to the patriot class of Americans who ended up throwing off British tyranny in 1776. I don't want to call out Jefferson for too terribly much uh, because those could be fighting words here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, but he didn't quite have all the facts. He didn't look into all the different details that really ended up sparking this particular revolt with Thomas Jefferson's kind of blessing on this whole thing. Another character later picked up the story of Bacon's Rebellion, a historian in the 1940s, and not to confuse matters, but his name was Thomas Jefferson Wharton Baker. And what Professor Wharton Baker did was he took Thomas Jefferson's original argument and, and just kind of gave it more meat and more credibility, did more research on Bacon, exactly what he did, by the 1950s and 60s, Wharton Baker's thesis was really being discredited as more colonial documents came to light, as more historians started picking it apart. But unfortunately, because this has been out there for so long, it's the Wharton Baker thesis that, you know, still kind of casts bacon in what we might think is a pre-patriot light.
2: Looking at Bacon as a patriot seems so bizarre after hearing the facts of the story through the colonial records. A man who relentlessly killed Virginia Indians in an effort to further his own economic high ground. And a power struggle that left much of Jamestown scorched.
1: There are no, you know, kind of positive figures on the Virginia side of things here. Bacon, of course, as the ringleader is not blameless in this. Barclay, as the one who's defending royal colonial rule in Virginia, is not blameless either. He's an irascible figure. He's been in office for far too long. He recognizes this. He just doesn't have the royal support and the ability to effectively deal with this problematic situation which is occurring in Virginia.
2: Bacon's rebellion is certainly a noteworthy event in Virginia's rich history. But sometimes history isn't what it seems on the surface.
1: The big number one thing is this was a conflict between English settlers and the Native American population for the control of Virginia. It is absolutely not a prequel to the American Revolution. Bacon should not be seen as, for lack of a better term, a pre-patriot. Really, what Bacon's Rebellion does is it pulls virtually everyone in the colony into it, and it it exposes those very deep divisions within Virginia's political and social fabric. Power is held in the hands of a few, the Barclay clique. You have other men of wealth and power, like Bacon, who want a a cut of that action. At the very lower level of society, you have disenfranchised white servants, former servants, all landholders, the landless folks, and then you also have slaves from Africa, formerly enslaved individuals who have been granted their freedom. You start to see this divide between black and white and the disenfranchised and those who aren't. After Bacon's rebellion, the laws shift and limited amounts of power placed in the hands of these disenfranchised white settlers to be able to preserve colonial rule but then that very, very, very stark dividing line between black and white starts to appear.
2: October 26th, 1676. The Bloody Flux claims the leader of a rebellion which would die with him in an unmarked grave. In a matter of months, Nathaniel Bacon led the disenfranchised to turn the tides against royal rule in the Virginia colony, though not with honorable intentions. Bacon was out to claim his self-righteous bounty with blood.
0: This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where collections of more than 129 million items tell the stories of Virginians to nearly 4 million people yearly. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. Five, four, three, two, one.
2: Countdown, ignition, and liftoff. The final three steps of one of the most incredible accomplishments of humankind. Sending a rocket into space from the surface of the earth. But progress is rarely marked by success after success after success. There's bound to be failure. October 28th, 2014.
0: When it happened, nobody really knew what to do, you know. I mean, we didn't know if we was in danger, you know, or what. So, you know, this may be your last day on Earth. You don't know.
2: An unmanned rocket carrying 5,000 pounds of supplies and experiments to the International Space Station becomes a ferocious fireball just seconds after liftoff from NASA's Wallops Island facility on Virginia's eastern shore. 14 stories tall, weighing more than 650,000 pounds in all, the explosion was felt some 20 miles
0: away team, launch team, be advised, stay at your consoles. It was incredible, it was intense, could feel it. A big mass fireball with uh, just shrapnel going all over the place.
1: It shook the house. My wife thought there was an earthquake.
2: Amazingly, nobody was killed. One journalist who was there for the launch and subsequent disaster said the rocket seemed to hang in the air as it started to burn. It was like watching a train wreck in slow motion.
1: The fire just continued to grow and the rocket wasn't gaining any altitude. Um, It started to
2: actually then go back down and the fireball just grew and grew. A pillar of fire slowly falling back to Earth before hitting the launch pad and exploding. Oh God! The heat from the explosion felt by some who were nearly two miles away. The delayed shockwave from the catastrophe hitting spectators a few seconds later. A farmer who can see the launch pad from his property a mile and a half away says the shockwave knocked his wife off her feet and sent wrenches flying from the hooks on his garage wall.
0: The sound waves and shockwaves came in and just blew the window out.
2: An official in Acomac County, where the facility is located, had to board up his now empty window at a sandwich shop, where NASA employees often grabbed lunch.
0: My biggest thoughts when I heard that the rocket exploded was that Orbital might say, that's it, we're done, we're not launching here anymore. And I was really thankful this morning to hear that uh, that's not the case.
2: Orbital Sciences Corporation was the Virginia-based company who owned the rocket. They've since been bought by Northrop Grumman for more than $9 billion. The failed launch back in 2014 was the company's third of eight flights under a nearly $2 billion contract with NASA to resupply the space station. The first two flights were a success, but in this case, the third time was not the charm. NASA termed it a catastrophic anomaly. Orbital's executive vice president faced the press shortly after the disaster. Something went wrong and we will find out what that
0: is. We will determine the root cause and we will uh, correct that and uh, we will come back and fly here at Wallops again.
2: So what did go wrong? How can a rocket and payload worth hundreds of millions of dollars become ash and debris in the wind in a matter of seconds. The results of investigations by both NASA and Orbital were released a year after the explosion. They both agreed on the conclusion that the problem started in a liquid oxygen turbo pump in one of the two engines in the rocket's first stage. That's the bottom of the rocket, used to provide thrust to get the entire thing off the ground. Friction in the turbopump started a fire, which spread quickly and led to the calamity. NASA's investigation could not determine what caused the turbopump problem in the first place. They blamed a trio of possibilities, design, debris, or manufacturing defect. But the company that owned the rocket, Orbital, went a step further and zeroed in on that idea of a manufacturing defect. And with millions of dollars on the line, how does a defect make it through inspection? Well, it's because these engines were far from new. The engines in the first stage were built in the late 1960s and early 1970s in the Soviet Union as the Russians planned a mission to the moon. Once NASA successfully landed on the lunar surface, the Soviets stopped trying and put the engines in storage for decades. An American company called Aerojet bought and refurbished them, which Orbital decided to incorporate. In its latest rocket design, one of these engines failed during a test in May of 2014, and Orbital was considering speeding up plans to replace them, but didn't do so in time. Oh God. Among the 5,000 pounds of supplies on top of the rocket were prepackaged meals for astronauts in the space station. That included freeze-dried Maryland crab cakes for a Baltimore-born astronaut who'd been floating in the ISS for five months. Never tried freeze-dried crab cakes before. Don't think I want to. You know, we Maryland people, we're snooty about our crabs. I'll admit it. (laughs) History remembers the disaster on October 28, 2014. But it very well could have happened the night before. That's because the 27th was the actual launch date. But they had to call it off less than 10 minutes from takeoff because a stray sailboat had entered what's known as the rocket's danger zone near the launch pad. The three critical aspects of launching a rocket were a success that October day on Wallops Island in 2014. Countdown, ignition, and takeoff. Only problem was, there was a second ignition after takeoff inside a turbopump, causing millions of dollars to disappear into dust.
0: By early October, Cornwallis was surrounded. He was outnumbered, at least two to one. He couldn't escape. After two or three weeks of intense bombardment, Cornwallis surrendered. And no one blamed him for that. British soldiers were highly trained Professionals that the country had invested a great deal of, of money treasure in, and you didn't just waste your soldiers' lives unnecessarily. The word is that when the news reached Great Britain that the king's prime Minister, Lord North, took it like a ball to the breast, meaning as if he'd been shot and <gasps> said, "My God, it is over."
2: Had to get the Wilhelm scream in this podcast somewhere, right? (laughs) Digital director Kate Albright is smiling right now. Back to our story. We told you about the Battle of Yorktown back in season two of How We Got Here with help from historian Ed Ayers. There's something that happened just over a week after the British surrender that falls into season four surrounding the man who many know as the British villain in Virginia, General Charles Cornwallis. You might remember that Cornwallis wouldn't even show himself to General George Washington following his defeat. The Brits were just so embarrassed.
0: Cornwallis himself pleaded illness and did not come out of his tent to surrender personally
2: He sent his second-in-command to surrender instead, as the American rebels had just done the unthinkable, defeat the British and pave the way towards independence.
0: It must have been a thrilling sight for the Americans to, to see these British marching between these two lines of soldiers and knowing that they were destined for a prison camp in Winchester in western Maryland, which they were very quickly marched off to.
2: But not all of the Redcoats were sent to that prison camp. You would think their leader, General Cornwallis, would face the same punishment as his soldiers, perhaps even worse considering his lack of respect to surrender himself, but not so fast. On October 28, 1781, nine days after the surrender at Yorktown, General Charles Cornwallis was paroled. That's right he was allowed to just leave. You know, sail away. The actual document he signed still survives today. Under the terms of his parole, Cornwallis was able to leave Virginia to return to Great Britain, as long as he didn't engage in further military action against the United States or its allies. His army, meantime, would remain prisoners of war. Remembered as the man who lost to the Americans, Cornwallis actually enjoyed the best post-war career of any of the British generals. The public saw him as a hero, and he was warmly received back in England, his reputation and career still intact. In 1786, King George III, yeah, that one. No spittle this time. (laughs) If you don't know what I'm talking about. Hamilton, Disney version, anyway. In 1786, King George III made Cornwallis a knight. That same year, he was appointed to be the commander-in-chief of the British forces in India. Clearly, his failure against the Americans was in the rearview mirror. In India, he defeated a massive revolt and was eventually appointed to the same position in Ireland in 1798. As a leader there, he once again met the French on the battlefield as they tried to invade Ireland, but Cornwallis would not lose to the French a second time. Remember, the French were allies in the Revolutionary War. They really helped us out in a pinch. King George III was going to get everything he could out of Cornwallis. Cornwallis was sent back to India in 1805, but he died following a fever shortly after his arrival at the age of 67. October 28, 1781. The leader of the British forces that rampaged around Virginia for months during the American Revolution is paroled and allowed to leave without punishment. General Charles Cornwallis couldn't bring himself to surrender to the Americans face-to-face at Yorktown but the rebels took the high road and repaid him with respect he likely didn't deserve. Let's face it, 2020 has been a year unlike anything we've ever known. And I know a lot of people are ready for it to be over. Include me in that group, But this year marks the 125th anniversary of a Richmond landmark. It's known as a place of elegance and wealth, though its history is far from stain-free. It was October 31st, 1895. Yes, Halloween. The Jefferson Hotel was opened for business. The hotel was the dream of a man whose name Richmonders will recognize, Louis Ginter. Born in New York to Dutch immigrant parents, he arrived in Richmond in 1842 at the age of 18 and made a fortune only to lose it all during the Civil War. He fought not for the Union, but served the Confederacy. After the war, he returned to New York, amassing another fortune in the banking industry. A recession hit, and Ginter lost it all again. At 50 years old, he returned to the city that first made him rich and entered a business that stood the test of centuries in Virginia, tobacco. Ginter's third fortune came in the form of rolled cigarettes. And his riches only grew larger when he sold his interest in tobacco to develop land to fit his lavish lifestyle as a philanthropist. Because he wanted the rich to have a reason to visit Richmond. In 1892, Genter, already known as one of the city's most colorful characters, hired a renowned architectural firm from New York to design the building the same firm that later would design the New York Public Library. Ginter used an estimated five to 10 million dollars in 1890s money to build and furnish the hotel that he hoped would become an extravagant destination for people across the country. The complex spanned much of a city block surrounded by Main Street and three others named for founding fathers, Franklin, Adams, And Jefferson. It featured twin clock towers, two roof gardens, opulent Turkish and Russian baths, billiard rooms, a library, and it was one of the first buildings in Richmond to have indoor plumbing as well as electric lights and electric elevators. The upper lobby was known as Palm Court and for good reason. Palm trees were imported from Central and South America There were two alligator pools. And yes, I mean actual alligators at the hotel. I'm not kidding here, actual alligators. More on that later. Trust me, stay tuned. (laughs) The centerpiece of the room was none other than a life size statue of the hotel's namesake, Thomas Jefferson. Ginter hired Richmond sculptor Edward Valentine to carve Jefferson out of marble. Valentine was able to get his hands on clothing that Jefferson actually wore to make the sculpture as accurate as possible. Two years and $12,000 later, it was complete. After three years of construction, the hotel was ready for the public. On that October day in 1895, People stood in heavy, heavy rain, waiting for the doors to open at 7 a.m. They rushed inside, relieved to be under a roof, and were absolutely stunned at what they saw. 308 guest rooms, the building dripping with wealth from valuable antiques and art purchased by Louis Ginter himself, the architectural detail, immaculate. Many proclaimed it to be the finest hotel in the country. And in its first week, the Jefferson House its first distinguished guest, Nancy Langhorne, stayed in the hotel for the wedding of her older sister. Nancy would later marry Waldorf Astor, become Lady Astor, and be the first woman elected to British Parliament. Unfortunately for Genter, his enjoyment of his creation was short-lived. In 1897, he died at the age of 73. And shortly after that, his dream was very nearly destroyed. Six years after it opened, a fire apparently caused by a defective wire scorched 60% of the building. The section of the hotel facing Main Street was ruined. Nobody was hurt, but the Palm Court's most famous resident was narrowly saved. A rescue crew that included Edward Valentine rushed to save the Marble Jefferson. They pushed it onto mattresses and lugged it outside. They accidentally dropped it, with Jefferson's head hitting the ground and breaking loose from the neck. For some time, the headless statue stood in the yard of a nearby home separated from its cranial companion until Valentine was able to reattach them. Some rooms reopened in 1902, but the majority of the hotel required massive repairs. The Palm Court was renovated. The 35-foot ceiling is made up of circular stained glass and 12 stained glass windows surrounded the room, believed to have been made by a man named Louis Tiffany. Yes, that Tiffany, which is now renowned for the powder blue boxes you can only get from Tiffany and Company. The grand staircase, which was previously shrouded behind arch walls, was fully revealed during the renovation. Many believe those 36 steps of polished marble with carpet along the middle were the model for the legendary staircase seen in the movie Gone with the Wind. So the movie was not filmed there. The designer of this restoration was none other than John Kevin Peebles, the man who designed editions of the Virginia State Capitol. The second grand reopening of the Jefferson Hotel was May of 1907, and now we get to talk about those alligators. I know you've been waiting for this moment, and trust me, it does not disappoint. When I read it with Colton, I got in a laughing fit for about an hour. Warning. As you might imagine, the reptiles that resided in those pools around the Jefferson statue were a hit with visitors. Richmonders and guests would even donate their own pet gators to live in the luxurious pools. Seriously, I'm still stuck on how other people own gators, where they got them. We may never know. I don't think I wanna know. Time for a little how we got here rabbit hole. Wait, do alligators eat bunnies? (laughs) I can hear Colton, my producer, groaning in my head right now. That means good joke. Anyway, legend has it that one alligator, I'm sorry. (laughs) Legend has it that one alligator ventured out of the pools Meandering into the library. The only person there at the time was an elderly woman who mistook the strong jawed creature for a footstool. This is literally on the Jefferson Hotel website. We are not making this up, I promise. When she saw said footstool moving toward the door, she ran out of the library screaming. By the time she brought hotel staff back into the area, the gator had made its way back into the pool. The woman already had a reputation for enjoying the drink and nobody believed her. It said the old gal never drank sherry again. Okay, I'm I'm done. The Peabody Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee may have a duck tradition that lives on to this day, but the alligators at Palm Court are no more. The last scaly inhabitant, named Old Pompey, died in 1948. It wasn't all exotic grandeur in the 1940s at the Jefferson Hotel. In March of 1944, there was another fire, this one deadly. It was the night before the final day of the General Assembly session that year, Just before midnight, flames were tearing through a staircase. Firefighters arrived to find the hotel's fire hoses were useless because they had begun to rot, delaying efforts to contain the blaze. Panic gripped the building. Guests tied bedsheets together to escape out of windows to safety below. Six people were killed, including a powerful state senator, whose desk was draped in black the following day at the Capitol. A former first lady of Virginia perished as well. The city fire chief speculated that someone flicked a lit cigarette into a container of sheets and paper. The irony is not lost here, since Ginter's fortune was made in cigarettes. An investigation would reveal the fire spread so rapidly in the staircase due to several coats of paint, which fueled the flames. Also, the stairwells were not up to code. The rooms where people died of asphyxiation, they were never given the same room numbers again. Following the devastation, repairs were made, but the Jefferson was on a roller coaster that was preparing to plunge. The 1950s, 60s, and 70s were a period of bad management Poor upkeep, and an array of other qualities you don't want in a hotel with a reputation to uphold. The end of sorts came in 1980, when the once elegant, opulent, lavish Jefferson Hotel closed. In 1983, the owners of the now abandoned building decided to sell. They got two offers, one from the federal government who planned to level the building and build the new Federal Reserve Bank, The other bid came from a local developer and group of investors. And for the sake of Richmond and the Jefferson Hotel today, it's lucky they came out on top. The hardwood and marble floors were polished for the first time in decades. The stained glass windows were refurbished to their former glory. Relics in the basement were reborn as craftsmen worked to revive the life left within. In 1986, after three years of renovations and more than $34 million, yet another grand opening of the once mighty Jefferson. The hotel was back to its former glory and was sold to another group of Richmond investors in 1991 who ordered another multi-million dollar restoration. The awards began piling up after that, with the Jefferson being named the best hotel in America by Forbes Magazine in 2001. The latest round of renovations came in 2013, transforming the Jefferson into what it is today. Of course, you can't talk about the Jefferson Hotel without mentioning the big names that have called its rooms home for at least a night. 13 presidents, Harrison, McKinley, Wilson, Coolidge, Taft, both Roosevelt's, Truman, and Reagan, both Bushes, Clinton and Obama, Charlie Chaplin, Charles Lindbergh, Dolly Parton, Ray Charles, Frank Sinatra, even Elvis. The King's breakfast included bacon, eggs over easy, milk, no coffee, and home fries, capped off with a scoop of ice cream in cantaloupe. For those of you wondering, It goes without saying, even if you can't afford to spend a night at Richmond's grandest hotel, it's worth a visit just to say you did. The dream of a tobacco tycoon comes to fruition. The Jefferson Hotel checked into the Richmond history books on October 31st, 1895. Through fires, renovations, and even alligators, It survived 125 years with no plans to check out anytime soon. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you, digital director, Kate Albright. I can't believe I get to say you are no longer a podcast editing procrastinator. Took you long enough <clears throat> four seasons in? <laughs> and everyone out there, I need you to send love to executive producer Colton Weekly. He's a new dad of a baby girl. Congratulations, Colton. Also, super shout out to new associate producer, Sam Mineri, who created our How We Got Here VA Instagram page. She really wants you to find us and like us. She makes a lot of content for this for us. Give her some love. Give us some love. And thank you to our guest this week, Luke Pecoraro, the Director of Curatorial Services at the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation and famed historian at Ayers. <laughs> Next week on Episode 5.
1: How we define history a week ago is different than the way we define history now.
2: How the president of the Confederacy got elected.
1: It takes radicals to start a revolution, but oftentimes once a revolution has moved into the
0: phase where they're starting to organize, it's moderates who come to lead. Plus, they were kind of shady characters, honestly.
2: The stories you've never heard about that famous Lewis and Clark expedition.
0: There's a sort of desire to create these mythically perfect individuals.
2: And tragedy on a runway in Richmond. That's next week on Episode 5. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at nbc 12com and if you don't mind and you use apple podcasts rate and review us it really does help others find us if you have any questions or ideas email us at how we got here at nbc 12com we'll be back in your life next monday